0: Chapter 2. We're in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Galatians. We're going to be in verses 17 to 21 this morning. Let me introduce myself first for those who don't know me. My name is Jordan. I'm the director of youth here at the shore. Love getting the opportunity to preach and teach. Um, I'm not going to tell any stories about fighting anyone this morning. So sorry for some of you who are looking forward to that. But I will tell you about a year I spent playing hockey in Europe, okay? So I got to spend one year playing hockey in Finland. And I lived in like super northern Finland, like 50 kilometers from the start of the Arctic Circle. So you can imagine it was like freezing cold. It was super dark all the time. And it was just a different world over there. Things were just different. Like they ate a lot of reindeer, which is really weird, right? It was just a different world over there. One of the things that was really different was how the guys on my team spent their leisurely time. Like when I played in North America, we would spend our days off like golfing or fishing or going to a baseball game or something like that. Every opportunity a Finnish guy got to have any moment off, it would be one thing and one thing only. We're going to the sauna, right? And they would go to the sauna. That, that's what they would do all night long. They would spend hours in there, 15, 20 guys crammed in the sauna, talk about team bonding. It was just a different world, right? One of the other things that was really different was the way the hockey business was ran. So in North America, it was a lot more professional. Um, One example is I would get paid how all of you get paid in your jobs. Like I would get a direct deposit every two weeks, right? totally normal. In Finland, I would get paid at any time during pay week, like any possible day at any possible time. So 3 PM or 3 AM, a strange man who you've never met would knock on your apartment door. It could be the middle of the night, like two o'clock in the morning. The guy knocks on the door, you open it up. A guy you've never seen before in a big trench coat reaches in his pocket. Whoa. And he gives you a Ziploc bag full of cash, says something in Finnish and walks away. Just a different world, it's just totally different. I didn't know a lot of the language, I knew enough to get by, like I think I, I knew like, hello, thank you, a couple swear words, all the essentials, you know? You know how it is when you're learning a new language. Um, the biggest difference though, was the style of hockey. It was really different, so if you're a hockey fan, you know that Canadian hockey, it's, it's fast, it's gritty, it's physical. Over in Finland and in Europe, it's much more flashy a lot more wide open, a lot more speed, a lot more skill, a lot more fanciness going on. And honestly, a lot of things that you would never get away with in North America, like I remember one game, my captain scored a goal and to celebrate, he skated by the other team's bench, put his stick over his arm and pretended to play the violin as a celebration. I would get beat up for that if I did that in North America. You would never get away with that. But the game was just different and, and I played on a really good line there. So I was the centerman, obviously from Canada. I had a right winger from Calgary and then we had a left winger who was a local guy from Finland. And this guy was really, really good, but he was a bit of a puck hog and he continually tried to do everything all by himself, which if you know anything about hockey or team sports, it's just impossible. So again and again, he would stick handle down the ice, try to deke through everyone, and failed over and over again. He just didn't quite grasp that if he were to pass it to one of us, we could give it back to him in a more optimal position. But no, he kept trying to do it again and again, and he failed again and again. And I remember one time, he got kind of close to breaking through. He got around one guy, got around another guy, but then their defenseman came and just hammered him to the ice. Totally clean check, totally legal, and a part of me inside was like, that's what you get for not passing the Canadians, right? I was fine with it. Like he just couldn't grasp that he had all these options around him to help him. But again and again, he'd wave us off, try to do it by himself, okay? Take that story. Just put that in your back pocket for a little bit, okay? It's like a Quentin Tarantino movie here. We're gonna jump into something totally different and then we'll come back to it, okay? Not exactly like that, okay? (laughs) So let me recap what we've seen in Galatians thus far, because that's going to help set the framework for where we're going today. Okay? So through the first two chapters and really the last couple of verses, Paul, the author of Galatians, has made a really interesting argument when it comes to this word justification or having right standing before God. And I want to bring some clarity to this word, justify or justification, because it's going to come up a lot today and moving forward. So, as one author put it, it'll be on the screen behind me. Justification is a word borrowed from the courtroom. In this particular courtroom, God is the judge. The law in question is his divine law. And sinful men and women, you and I, are the defendants. Justification is a verdict a declaration of a person's status in view of the court. The opposite of justification is condemnation. To condemn is to give the verdict of guilty and to justify is to give the verdict of not guilty. So when a person receives a verdict from the court, he is declared either justified or condemned. Okay so as we, as we've been in Galatians, Paul has made this argument in regards to justification. He said basically that the Jews or or let's say the religious people, the people who attend church, they had a moral advantage over the Gentiles or the non-religious people, the people who didn't go to church. He's saying they had an advantage because the Jews had the law. They had the Old Testament law. They knew it inside and out, but the Gentiles knew none of that. He says the Jews had the prophets, the Gentiles did not. The Jews knew about the covenant, the promises, the signs. The Gentiles had no background of that whatsoever. And so he's saying if there was ever a moral advantage, it belonged to the Jews, to the religious people. But Paul's argument to all of that is basically, who cares? It doesn't matter because the law justifies no one. So, just because someone had the law from the beginning and knew it inside and out or didn't have it at all, it makes no difference when it comes to who God saves. And so, let me ask this morning how was your home life growing up? Or how is it right now if you're still growing up? Like, were you loved? Were you supported? Were you encouraged? Were you prayed for? Did your parents point you towards Jesus? Or were you over here? Were you neglected? Were you abandoned? Were you abused? We all have different stories in here, different backgrounds and different parents who did things differently. And so Paul's point is when it comes to justification, when it comes to right standing before God, any moral advantages you received upon birth do not bring about justification. He's essentially saying that if you were born into a house where your dad was a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a faithful churchman, your mom was a faithful believer who led Bible studies, attended church all the time, who gave birth to you on a Sunday morning right onto the altar, and you've been coming to church regularly ever since, you read your Bible, you never get drunk, you don't do drugs, you don't smoke, you remain pure until marriage, you've done all the things that Christians are supposed to do, you're nailing it. He's arguing that when it comes to justification, you are no better off than the person who's never even met his father, whose mom gave birth to you at a bar, who grew up drinking and smoking, living a life exploring sexual pleasures, who drops F-bombs every second word and has ultimately lived in every deplorable way imaginable. Paul argues that this moral guy has no advantage over the immoral guy. Both are in desperate need of a savior. Neither one can save themselves. Neither one has the ability to justify themselves with any behavior. And so so here's what we got to do today if we're going to see what God is saying through this text. We have to get over ourselves regardless of where we are on this scale. Wherever you are, if you grew up on this side over here, that doesn't make you better than or more justifiable than the man or women who grew up over here. And I want to be clear here because Paul in this argument is talking strictly within the confines of justification and salvation, okay? Because I I can say with confidence that there's obviously advantages to growing up in a home that you're cared for, encouraged, prayed for, and pointed towards Jesus. There's no doubt there's advantages there. Paul's simply saying they're just not advantages that bring about salvation, and so ultimately, the best a parent can do, and I know you're like, you don't have kids, what are you talking about? Tell me I'm wrong though. The best a parent can do is really gather as much kindling as possible around their kids and pray and hope the Holy Spirit ignites it. Like, like my future kids, right? Whenever this is an announcement, whenever that happens, <laughs> they are not, my future kids are not going to be justified just because they're born into the house of someone who's in ministry full-time. That's not gonna do it. That alone will not save them. They and we will not be justified because we attend church regularly, right? We will not be justified because we memorized a few Bible verses. We're not justified by any work we've done on our own. There's only one who justifies and that's Jesus. And so the law, external actions, good behavior, None of that's going to justify. That's the point that Paul is hammering home here. And, and Paul already told us in chapter one that he's not going to relent from this argument. He's not going to stop. He's not going to back off. And he's going to continue to bang on that same drum as we get into verse 17 and 18. It says this. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Or if I rebuild what I tore down, I've proved myself to be a transgressor. Okay, so what he's saying here is, is if you could reference 2 Corinthians chapter three, which I don't have time to do it now, but read that, 2 Corinthians chapter three. Paul calls Moses, okay, so Moses, the one who brought the 10 commandments, who basically brought the law and the rules. Paul calls Moses a minister or a bringer of sin. Why? Because before there was law and rules, no one could be accused of doing anything wrong. But then Moses brings the law and the law reveals that we screw up all the time. Okay, so Paul calls him a minister of sin. And so what that meant is basically that when the law enters the scene, it becomes clear that we fall short and that we're sinners. And so if we could kind of set the stage, like can you imagine what Israel must've been thinking when Moses came down the mountain and all of a sudden there were rules? And one of the first things he says is, thou shall not worship other gods. And they look behind them and there's a golden calf they're worshiping, right? And Moses goes on like, hey, don't covet, don't steal, don't lie. You gotta be thinking the Israelites are like, this is gonna be a problem, right? (laughs) Because there hadn't been any rules before that, right? And so Moses comes and he brings the rules and what do they do? They show that we fall short again and again. The law shows that we can be condemned. The rules show that we are far from what God wants us to be. And so here's what Paul is saying in this text. If Jesus has simply come with more rules, then he has not come to bring life and righteousness, but rather he has come to bring more sin, more condemnation and more death. And so Paul's arguing here that Christ has not come to bring new rules. It's not why he's here. He hasn't come with a new bag of laws and rules. Instead, he has come to say, I am your righteousness and I'm taking God's wrath from you. I'm here to free you from the effects of the fall. I am rescuing you from the clutches of sin and death. Jesus did not come bringing accusations, but he came to remove all accusations. He literally takes it off of you. And so he's saying, I am not building back up what I just ripped down. No, Jesus doesn't say, hey, I fulfilled the law. And now here's some more law. Since you couldn't get it right the first time, I got some way easier ones for you now. No, Paul argues, if you make Jesus a bringer of the rules, you make her a minister, a bringer of sin, condemnation, and death. And is he that? By no means is what the text says. He has not come to rebuild what he's torn down. That's not why he came. And the other thing I want you to see in this text, which will be especially helpful when we get to our last verse, is the thing that the law does that's different than what Jesus does. Here's what I mean. The law creates space between you and God. So if we're like this, The law shows us that we've fallen short. And when we fall short, it shows you this great separation between the holiness of God and us. The law will continually create space between you and God. And what does Jesus do? He fills in that space and gives us a way to get to the Father. He becomes the great redeemer, the great reconciler, and he fills that space so we are able to pursue him, to run to him, able to make much of him, able to, without any guilt or shame, have a deep and intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Because no longer does the law accuse, but Jesus grants life and righteousness to all who would put their trust in him. He gives us a way to the father. Let's look at verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Okay, short little sentence here. So let me try to explain how one law can trump or overshadow, push back another law. Okay, so at youth group on Thursday nights, okay, I have a few, probably like the bare minimum, number of rules, Okay. And for the sake of this sermon, we'll just call them the law. All right. They're really simple, not complex at all. Okay. So rule number one, I take this really, really seriously. Rule number one, have fun. Okay. Not complex. I want to make sure everyone's having fun, laughing, enjoying one another. And I take that seriously. Like, Hey, you're going to have fun and you're going to like it. Right. That's a big deal to me. That's a law. But I have another rule. Number two, and you can see how they can collide here, especially with teenagers, okay? Number two, be safe. So have fun, but be safe. Can you see how those rules can at time come in contact with one another? Parents of teenagers? Yeah. And so here's my question. If have fun collides with be safe, which law wins? Come on, give me some credit. Well, you know, they're having an awesome time playing dodgeball with those scissors, but... It's going to let it happen because they're having so much fun. No, that's not going to happen. Be safe will always trump have fun. And so what's happening in this text is there is a greater law that is pushing away a lesser law. So at youth group, have fun is law, but a greater law is be safe. So that if something is fun, but not safe, the safety law wins. Likewise, in this text, Paul is saying that there is a greater law, a law of having faith in Jesus Christ alone that has freed him from the Old Testament Mosaic law with its ordinances and rules. This greater law of just having faith in Jesus has set him free from trying to perfect this. And so listen, because it's going to be important for us because this greater law of faith has set him free to what? It says to live for God. And the implications of that little statement are massive because here's what he's doing. He's completely reshaping and restructuring our understanding of what it means to live for God. So think about the language. Like when we talk about living for God, what do we have a tendency to point to? Well, oftentimes it's some sort of external action or moral behavior or being a good guy or a good woman, whatever that means. And so if you're like, hey, I'm not going to do this or I'm going to do this or I'm not gonna partake in that because I wanna live for God. Paul says you're missing what it actually means to live for God. He says to live for God means to simply have faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what's pleasing to God. Hebrews 11 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. A life lived unto God is a life lived God with faith in Jesus. So when you use language like, hey, I want to live for God, and so that means I have to do this, and I have to make sure I don't do this, I definitely can't do that, he's he's saying that it's revealing that you don't quite understand what it means to live for God. And honestly, that way of thinking and living is a dangerous place to be that could lead you to potentially becoming legalistic, self-righteous, self-absorbed, and really not a great person to be around, which is the kind of person that Jesus constantly rebukes in the gospels. In Isaiah 64, God says it like as bluntly as he possibly can when he's talking about our acts that are trying to earn justification. He says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So God looks at our external Moral actions are good behavior that we have redefined as living for God that we think are bringing about justification and favor. And he says, those all look like filthy, dirty, smelly, disgusting rags. But the sacrifice that God is most pleased with is the one that comes to him with a broken and contrite spirit that has faith in Jesus, that's it. And I feel, I've really felt all week compelled to expand on this a bit. And I don't know who this is for because I've seen this play out personally and I've really seen it hurt a lot of people whom I love. And it really, it really makes my blood boil. And let me just say that on the surface, there's obviously nothing wrong with living good externally moral lives. Like, come on, how good of a world would it be if we all lived like that? God gave us the law for a reason because that's how humanity was meant to live in its fullest. But where it becomes a problem is when you start to think that because you are living that way, because you are following these rules, for that reason, you are earning favor and justification from God and are better than those who do not. The Bible is very clear that you're not. And so look, let me give you freedom to follow the law okay? You want to follow the Old Testament law. You want, to, you want to not eat shellfish or pork. You want to not touch unclean animals. You want to not burn yeast or honey, all things from the Old Testament law. You want to not tear your clothes. If in your personal relationship with God, you find that by doing these things or not doing these things, it draws you closer and more and more into faith in Jesus then by all means partake. But just because these are things that bring you closer to God, that God has revealed to you as ways you can know him more, does not, not mean that you are better off than those who do not, and it does not give you license to lord that over other people and judge them. You have no right there. Romans 8 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. It's through Jesus alone that we are justified. No external action. Christ alone the God we believe in, the God of the Bible, when he looks at you, so imagine you're in that courtroom. He doesn't look at what you did or didn't do, but he looks at Jesus' finished work on the cross. And he says, all who believe in him are justified. Jesus justifies, that's it. Jesus plus nothing. And so Paul He was set free by this old law, by a greater law, a law of having faith in Jesus Christ. And that law of faith enabled him to live for God, to have a life that showed the glory and magnificence of God. And so what does this look like on the ground level, in the day-to-day, the practicality of it all? That brings us to our our big verse, Galatians 2.20. Really, really popular verse, really great verse to to dive into here. It says this, Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I've really prayed all week and up until just a few moments before here that the spirit would open up our hearts to really dial in on this because there's a crazy amount of freedom on the table for you here. Paul just said, how does this all work? How does the law of faith push back the old law and allow me to live for God? Well, ultimately, it's because I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that means that all of our sins, past, present, future, they are all taken care of in the person and work of Jesus. So if there is ever any accusation against you, whether it be from another person, from a voice inside of you, from a demonic force speaking to you, that's something inside of you that says there's no way this person deserves heaven. They deserve hell. They deserve damnation. They deserve sorrow. They deserve deserve pain. Do you know what the response is from heaven? Absolutely they do. But did you see what Jesus did? He paid for that. And if that voice is like, hey, they've stumbled again, they've fallen again, they've turned their back again, are you going to continue to love them? God says, absolutely. Did you see what Jesus did? He paid for every bit of that. And he goes on and he says, not only is all of my sin taken care of in Christ because of this great act of love, but now the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. And when he says flesh here, especially for those of you who know Romans 8 well, he's not talking about sinful attributes. He's literally talking about our flesh. Like, I'm dead in Christ, but I'm still standing here in this body, right? Yes. Easy question. So I'm dead in Christ, but this body is still here. And so although I am dead in Christ, the life I live in the flesh, I now live with faith in who? in Jesus. Why? Because he loved me and he gave himself up for me. And so here's the confidence that we can walk in. We can fixate our eyes on Jesus. We can be unmovable and unshakable growing into him, following him, getting to know him more, falling more and more in love with him. And regardless of any stumble along the way, we know that it's been paid for. Because look, I'm going to blow it this week. I just know it. Maybe you want a preacher who's more holy than that. I prefer to be honest, but I'm going to blow it. Maybe it'll be, something I say or a thought or just the state of my heart, but I'm going to fall short. And here's what can happen. If I'm living under the old law where I'm trying to earn my way to God, to earn my justification, that falling short could destroy me and create an unbelievable amount of space between God and me. And really destroying the power of the Holy Spirit in me and the victory and joy I get to walk in in Jesus. But if I understand that my fallen short has already been absorbed in the cross of Christ, and that what I have been given by God in Jesus is Christ's righteousness, then doesn't that motivate me to get up? to keep pursuing him, to repent, to be grieved that yes, I rebelled against a holy God who loves me so much, but also be set free to pursue him all the more. That's the sign of a mature believer that when you fall short, you don't run and hide from God and try to fix things, but no, you run straight to him as fast as you can because you know it's all finished and he already paid for that. And so it can be so simple, but I get that the application to this can be hard. But if you can just get your eyes off of yourself and fixate them on Jesus, everything in your life would change. But the more we're like, oh, woe is me. I screwed up again. If I could just do this, this, and this to clean myself up before I run back to God. I can't believe I did it again. If I could just attend a couple more things and memorize some more the more it's inward, the more that it's all about us, the more paralyzed and weak we're going to be. But the more we can fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, where Jesus is, who Jesus is, the more that we can meditate upon and really glory in who Christ is, the more free he'll be, the more victory you will walk in. And it's such a simple thing that so many of us struggle with. But let me just say, don't celebrate or loathe yourself. No, celebrate Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Let's see how Paul closes this out. Verse 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Maybe you'll remember in in our Advent series, we talked about this cosmic plan for the Christ to come and redeem all things and accomplish what the law could not accomplish. So Paul here in verse 21 is saying, if you run back to the law to try to earn your justification, he's saying you ignore the grace of God and you make Jesus' death meaningless. So reach back into that story from from the top. My teammate tried to do everything by himself had all these options around him, these these great offers on the table to help him obtain his goal. But again and again, he tried to do it all by himself, failed over and over and over again, continually waved off all of the great things available to him, but fell down by himself again and again. Here's how this plays out. What you have offered today and every day is forgiveness And ever-increasing joy, the fullness of life now and on into eternity with the God of the universe. And like my old teammate, we say, don't need it. I got this. Out of my way. I can handle this on my own. Next time it's gonna work finally. I know it. And Paul's saying, This is what you have. Do you see what's on the table for you? And you're going to ignore all of this? Earlier in Galatians, Paul says, I am astonished and it blows my mind that you would make this trade that instead of intimacy with the God of the universe, you want to ignore that grace. You want to ignore that intimacy, ignore the fullness on the table and instead say, you know what? I'm going to do it by myself. Just just let me learn enough about you, Jesus. I don't need to really know you. I don't want to know you personally. I don't need a real intimate relationship with you. You're basically saying, I don't want full freedom. I like having chains. I like having restrictions. And maybe we'll say things like, hey, I don't need a full relationship with Jesus because I haven't missed a Sunday at church in years. Like I'm in a community group. I got Bible verses memorized. I went on a missions trip last year. I'm a good guy. Yeah, I feel like I'm lacking a little bit. I feel like I'm missing something. I'm not in sync with the Lord. But if I just try a little bit harder, this time I can break through. What about trying a relationship with Jesus? Now I got this. I got it. Or maybe you're on the other side and you don't feel like you need Jesus or any of this at all. Like, hey, I can make myself happy. I know what I want. It's not Jesus. It's certainly not church or religion or none of that. I can find happiness my own way. And as someone who's tried to live the, live the test of Solomon and Ecclesiastes to explore the world for pure satisfaction, like it doesn't work. Like how much stuff and money and status and sex can you have and have it not work for you to make you think that what you really need is more that hasn't worked for you? There's a little bit of psychosis there, isn't it? So how are you living? Are you waving him off? I got this. How's that space between you and God? What's in that space? That's a great way to judge whether this is sinking in or not. Because if the law creates space, and Christ is meant to fill that space, is he? Are you able to run to God, to worship him, to make much of him, have a relationship with him that you desire to grow deeper and more intimate? Or is this space more of an empty chasm that you don't know how to get through? You don't know how to get across it. You're trying to do it by yourself. Maybe you're running a diagnostic and not a cure. You're trying to get across by your own doing. And not through Jesus. If so, it could just be that you're nullifying the grace of God. But the good news is you have the opportunity to repent of that today and every day. And Jesus will come and fill that space for you immediately. And this might be the first time ever where you've been at church and someone has told you that maybe you need to repent of church. Maybe you need to repent of trying to justify yourself or earn favor with religious things. And you're not allowing yourself to be justified by the only one who can actually justify and satisfy you. And so that offer is on the table for you. For a former life to be made new in the image of Christ, to be transformed by the glory of his grace, and my hope is that you will hear, your heart will be opened, and you'll respond by simply chasing Jesus and allowing him to fill that space. I'm gonna close with a, a spoken word called drown to found. This is a tale as old as time, a familiar story. It's about a young man caught up in the world filled with all the same worry. He asked all the same questions like, who am I? What's my purpose? What's gonna make me truly happy? And looking to belong, he did whatever it took filled with built up anxiety, trying to perfect that popular lifestyle look thought he'd find joy through the things of this world, money, status, fame, popularity, girls, but none of it truly fulfilled. It was like chasing the wind, like running on a treadmill. He knew this wasn't really him, but couldn't bear the thought of not fitting in. He laid awake at night, knowing there had to be something more than this, but if the crew knew who he really was, he'd be out. Isolated, alone, sad, no identity, never living in serenity, darkness overwhelming ceaselessly, emotionally lost, a wreck. Having a sense of belonging, the chance of that, no bigger than a speck. But it's amazing what happens when you think you're losing it all. When you're at your lowest of lows, Paul says it's in our weakness that we should boast. Because when all seems lost and we feel like we could never afford the cost to pull ourselves out of the pit without getting tossed and it looks like we're heading to doom, that's the moment Christ shows up and says, look at all this room. Room to work in the mess. Room to invade the darkness. Room to tell all that have transgressed that hope is alive. You are so, so blessed. Blessed. Therefore rejoice, he says, that you've gotten to this place because amidst the searching for hope, he will drown you in his grace. And while the world shouts, dress like this, eat this way, talk like this, drink this, smoke that, present yourself like this, post it on your at, do, 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 Jesus says, no, it's done. Therefore there is nor Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female. Your identity, your worth has been unveiled and it's been shown to us in Jesus. That's what the guy in the story learned. That moment he felt like he had drowned was really the beginning of the road that led him to be found. The son of man came. The people had him crowned. But he was humble. He didn't want the power. Instead, he chose to be bound. Bound to what? A curse tree on our behalf. See, for years and years, payment was made through the life of a calf and that should have been us. Our fate was that one day we would die without our payment satisfied, no new bodies for us to rise. But that humble guy who so many had prophesied paved a way for us to live and said, your sins are nullified. Why? Because I've been crucified for you and for all so that none would truly die, but instead you will rise and be glorified, all wrath on you gone. You'll be justified, but it doesn't stop there. You'll be sanctified, which means you'll be made more and more in his image, shaped by the beautiful gospel message, given hope, life, purpose, and identity. This is what the guidance story came to see. How do I know that? That guy's me. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for, thank you God for just your grace for the insane amount of freedom that you give us by justifying us on our behalf so we don't have to do anything to earn it. What a crazy amount of freedom that's on the table for us. That if we would just have faith in you, we would be saved have the fullness of life. And so God, I pray that you would just work in each of our hearts this morning. Help us wrestle with this. Help us think what's in that space right now. And if it's not you, Jesus, would you just give us the courage and boldness to ask you to come and fill it. And if there's any accusations against us this morning, telling us we're not worthy, we're not good enough, Jesus, we just ask in your name that you would push those back and remind us that you paid for all of that. You remove all accusations. We are set free. We are made perfect and holy and blameless because of what you did on the cross, Jesus. We love you for that. And so I just pray for courage for my brothers and sisters in here to just do the painful and difficult work of self-examination and see where we might not be having you at the center of our lives. We need you. We love you.